Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, we're going to talk about the Moroccan peace deal with Israel, a militant uprising in Mozambique, the stranglehold that China has over India, uh, and we'll touch up on the U.S. election, you know, election month part one, and uh, all that and more coming up. Alright, let's get into the rapid-fire news. Now, we have here, uh, thousands are now homeless in Honduras due to hurricanes. It is hurricane season, and Central America's been getting hit pretty hard. Not too many have made land in the U.S. so far, but we'll probably get a big one eventually. Uh, Nigerian troops have repelled a Boko Haram attack. Uh, And if I'm not mistaken... They do have, like, a U.S. military presence there where the U.S. is training them to fight uh, terrorist groups. So I guess that training is paying off. Uh, Beyond that, we have fires have been set to oil facilities in northern Iraq. Uh, Those fires have been put out. Apparently, no production was taken offline, but the fact that they were set in the first place shows that they are a vulnerability in the country. So, uh, major oil producing country, uh, potentially something worse could happen if, say, a larger state actor were to throw their hand in the ring and do the same. You could see production taken offline, and it would cripple the Iraqi economy. And I believe we're going to be talking about Iraq later on in the episode. Yes, we are. All right, so we'll get move on from there and get back to them eventually. Uh, in the while well, we're still talking about fire. Europe's largest volcano, Mount Etna, uh, that's E-T-N-A, Etna, erupts in Sicily, uh, spewing lots of ash and lots of lava into the air. Uh, What what can you say? It's 2020. (laughs) No one would be surprised if Pompeii went off again. But, uh, not looking good. Not looking good for uh, Europe. I was about to say Ethiopia, but it's not looking good for them either. Potentially. Then there's the Indian MV Anastasia bulk cargo carrier that was transporting coal to China has now been stranded for over a year in Chinese water. Uh, There is a protest movement uh, from the families of the sailors demanding that they be brought home. There's about 41 people on the boat, if I'm not mistaken... And just another another nail in the coffin of Indo-Chinese relations. Uh, it could become something bigger if, the, if any sort of dramatic action were to be taken against them. Uh, we know how the Chinese are with their ramming in the South China Sea. Uh, if anything were to happen to these people, it could very quickly turn into an international incident even bigger than it is now. And my guess is that it, something like that will happen in the near future. We don't know what it will be. I certainly don't. 
I just feel that something like that is going to happen and it will be kind of like an official start to this Cold War or at the very least an official recognition from people that aren't us of the Cold War between China and India. And we, we can see how fast things can change just looking at France when the teacher got beheaded, Samuel Patty, his name was, and how rapidly the tide had turned um, in France against Islam in general, where they were taking these harsh actions. We could see that with India taking a harsher stance against China. And, yeah, it's very dangerous. Sure, they have a mountain chain between them, but they have nuclear weapons. That That's all I'll say. That's all I'll say. Meanwhile, people around the world are beginning vaccinations for the COVID-19 virus. So that's good. I believe we have a couple hundreds of thousands of um, doses coming out within the next few weeks from various countries. Uh, but there is still no end in sight for lockdown orders, however. And, well, as we, as I have kind of detailed here over the past couple weeks, the lockdowns are very interesting wrenches thrown into the machines of relative power relationships. When I talked about the uh, relative power of nations and how the lockdowns are hurting economies, which hurt countries' abilities to do things that they would normally be able to do countries that are not locking down or are reopening faster um, are going to be in a better position in the short term. Now, I made the case in that episode that demographics would probably be the more long-term thing to look for with regards to relative power relationships as Europe has aging populations, but in the case of Hungary and Russia, they were trying to reverse their aging demographic by incentivizing kids. So, the thing with that is when you have young people, young people tend to be the consumers of an economy, and you can get domestic growth. You, Not to mention young people are the people who, the people are the people who get drawn into the military. They're the future innovators and whatnot. They are more likely to have kids than someone who's in their 40s and 50s. Young people come with a whole host of advantages that... Aging countries will increasingly uh, envy, and countries that don't have to worry about it will continue to take for granted. So that's the long-term indicator with regards to the relative power of nations. I don't know if I conveyed that as well as I just did in the episode, but uh, the episode's doing pretty well. Uh, Actually, I want to take this moment to thank everyone who's been listening to me. Uh, I did not expect to do this little podcast to do as well as it is right now. I'm very much lacking my metrics, and we're going to keep chugging along, all 25 of us. (laughs) But meanwhile, the Nagorno-Karabakh death tally is now uh, around 5,000 people as, uh, what was it, Azerbaijan has started to release its death tally. Uh, these 5,000 people do include civilians and as well as military. So, I don't know if there's like a breakdown for it. I tried to find it, but I guess it's not disclosed quite yet. But, um, 5,000 people. A lot less than before. But now this game has changed because Russia owns the Caucasus. 
And uh, speaking of Nagorno-Karabakh, the Armenians are upset with their prime minister, and they have begun to blockade roads in the country. Uh, all this while a couple thousand Russian peacekeepers are in the region. I said it was 400 last time, but I got an updated number now is around 4,000, I believe. So either 4,000 or 2,000. Whatever the case, that's five to ten times more people than I thought was there. So let's just let's just really double down on this notion that Russia now has the Caucasus on lockdown. So I don't know what the Turks are going to try to get out of this. They're probably not going to get much because there are now 4,000 Russian soldiers in the Caucasus. Uh, the Armenians are upset with their prime minister. I mentioned that Putin has been defending the Armenian Prime Minister for agreeing to the deal, because of course he would, because the deal gave him control over the Caucasus. And while we're still in the Caucasus, there were five tremors in Russia's uh, Chechen Republic in 24 uh, over the course of 24 hours. Now, for those of you who don't know, Chechnya uh, fought a war against Russia back in the 90s and early 2000s, I believe, uh, back when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia forcibly reintegrated them. And they've been pretty docile ever since. Now, obviously, they don't like the Russians, and the Russians don't like them. But I th thought that this was a little interesting, the five tremors in this region specifically. Uh, natural disaster, potentially on the way. Uh, in a very convenient location for Russia, <laughs> right on top of a restive minority group known for fighting them. But, conspiracies aside, well, we do speculation here, so uh, I have no room to talk. But meanwhile, uh, in the 10 Afghan peace talks, uh, they have been put on hold until January. Uh, but it's not a bad thing that they've been put on hold so much. It's more like they've both sides have chosen to take a break after reaching an agreement on the procedures to continue peace talks. So they've basically set up a guideline on how they're going to proceed with their peace talks moving forward. And they've taken that breakthrough and now they're going to go on like a bit of a recess until January of next year. Uh, all this as... 12,000 U.S. troops are set to leave the region. Now, an interesting thing on that is that the Taliban has threatened to resume its attacks if the U.S. stalls on withdrawal. And all I have to say that is, oh, don't mind us. <laughs> oh, no, they're going to attack us if we don't leave. Hmm, I guess I guess we should we should leave. We don't we don't want the Taliban to attack us. <laughs> I don't know what they were expecting to get out of that, but who knows? Well, actually, depending on who takes the presidency, that could affect how we remove ourselves from this region, uh, and I'll touch up on that in a, uh, later. I was about to say a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a minute. <laughs> I just looked at my notes, and the U.S. is right there. So, 12,000 troops to leave the region... If everything goes roughly according to plan. Uh, meanwhile, Australian coal is now also being targeted in the trade war by China. 
Now, we brought this up, I think it was in the last episode, where China and Austria were in a trade war. And I brought up how the early lines in the sand were being drawn in the Cold War between China and India. Now, if you remember, for those of you who kind of uh, don't get what I mean when I say that Australia is a part of the China-India Cold War, if you remember back to the Cold War between Russia and the United States, it wasn't just Russia and the United States. They were just the main players. There were other countries involved, like, say, East and West Germany, or Britain, France, Japan, and South Korea. Well, South Korea became a thing after World War II and then was defended and brought into the American sphere when the North invaded. So a whole series of events, but a whole series of countries were involved in that Cold War. And due to where Australia is and the relative lack of reach that India and China have, China can reach with money, but that's about it. They can't really reach with military. So this is going to be more of a regional Cold War, especially considering the the two players in question are right there. They're right next to each other. So we'll touch up on that later. But I wanted to bring this up because Australia is heavily dependent on China for its coal exports. And China is now targeting the coal. Probably in favor of domestic production. They have been building more coal power plants. I remember a couple months back seeing a report on that. So the Chinese will be relatively unfazed in time in Australia is going to have to find a new coal partner, probably somewhere in Africa or maybe India. Hmm, there you go. Could they start selling their coal to India as China has made itself an unreliable partner? Who knows? I'm going to guess that they'll probably try. I don't think they'll be able to sell much to the United States. We have shale and shale oil and natural gas. But India is a country of a billion and almost a half people as well. And they have power plants that run on coal as well. Hmm. Economic interests now realigning with geopolitical interests? Potentially. I'm just saying. This is the Cold War we're looking at. I'll get in more into detail on the in- the situation with India itself later. But it, I really want to keep a lookout for this region. But we'll, and it will close out this rapid-fire news section with the UAE looking to gain access to Russian COVID vaccine. Now, I brought that here because it seems that the Russians, uh, I reported on their COVID vaccine, Sputnik V, that's the name of it, and they appear to be using the COVID vaccine to gain influence. And the Russians are really just making a whole series of power plays lately. With the minimum in the absolute minimum input required, it's actually very, very entertaining to watch. So now they're using the COVID vaccine to gain influence in places, and well, they haven't initiated this, but they're probably going to accept for the purpose of gaining influence in the Middle East. Uh, why they would do it, who knows only the Russians do, but hey, a friend is a friend. So, 
we'll see who else signs on to the Russian vaccine. Uh, you don't know. It could be someone important. This could just be a, a single domino to someone far larger. And in a more strategic, economic, or physical location. We don't know. But I wanted to bring it up because the Russians are making power plays and this could be one of them. I see the I see the potential effects of it uh with given the right countries uh sign on to it or if enough countries sign on to it to where it becomes popularized just like the sale of Russian weapons. So, we'll see where they go with that and it'll definitely boost the Russian economy straight out of this recession if they secure a whole bunch of deals for their vaccine so again the relative power between them and other people especially the countries that are buying their vaccines from russia instead of producing them that's a massive relative power difference that is greatly in favor of the russians especially consider that they are not looking towards new covid lockdowns so their economy is already on track to recovery, and this vaccine could supercharge their recovery to where they might be able to squeak out growth in the next quarter. So, be on the lookout for them. But now, we are done with the rapid-fire news section, and we're going to touch up on the United States. I have not invoked their name, the name of my country, in a while, but... Today, the Electoral College meets to cast their votes for the next president of the United States. Now, the inauguration is January 20th, and there's a deadline in January 6th for certain election results and whatnot. So, uh, I, I really don't know what to expect out of this, okay? Uh, it's a, a highly contested election, uh... If for no reason other than the fact that the Trump team isn't giving up on this. Uh, so we'll see who wins out in the end. And we're really just going to have to wait until January 20th for the definitive final, final, final answer. As to who the final, final finale winner of this election month thing is. Election month part one is over, so now, January 20th from now, that's another month. So election month part two is going to begin shortly. But beyond election century, <laughs> beyond uh, the election, the winner will be responsible for a number of things. Uh, the biggest that I see is that the winner will be responsible for, one, a divided nation, highly contested and a, there was a leaked there was a leaked audio of Joe Biden talking about progressives and it did not portray them in a good light and the progressives now hate him more than they did before so there, there goes the progressive wing of the Democrat party I brought up how they were fractured in my episode uh what was it, immediately before or immediately after? It Yeah, it was the Monday after the election because it was on Tuesday right after I did a podcast. 
So I brought up the divisions in the Democrat Party and how it's going to tear them apart, whether they win or lose. And if Biden wins it, I'll be proven right. So there's that. But aside from the divided country, they'll be responsible for a number of other things. Not that a divided country is going to make any of this easier, because the winner of this election will be responsible for overseeing the end of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we have the vaccines now, so it's just going to be a matter of distribution and production. But they're not going to be instantaneous, so it's probably going to take a couple months to really, really ramp up production to start the mass, mass vaccinations of people. And we're going to be seeing that the world over, especially with the Russians when they're making deals with a whole other countries already. So expect expect growth, economic, uh, expect good economic figures out of the countries that are producing vaccines. Because um, that, I really just realized that when I was bringing up Russia, uh, vaccine production and sales of the vaccine are probably going to help countries get out of the recession. And countries that have to buy them are probably going to be held down for a while as well as they try to get it under control. Their COVID under control. The winner of the U.S. election will also... Uh, I touched up on that just a minute ago. They'll also have to begin rebuilding the economy which has been damaged by the lockdowns. And that's why I used the lockdowns to talk about the relative power relations between countries because it hurts the economy when you keep them locked down. Uh, if for no reason other than it hurts productivity of certain things, materials, services, you have it. So they'll have to rebuild. Now, the vaccine is obviously going to help if... You're a producer of that vaccine. It's going to supercharge your recovery. If you can produce it, the people can get it. You can sell it to other nations. You can do a whole slew of things if you're producing the vaccine. If you have to buy it, well, that's another hit for your economy. Uh, a temporary hit, but a hit nonetheless, especially if we're talking we're going to be a couple, at least a month before we start getting some serious production figures going uh, to the point where we could, a country like the United States that has 300 million people can start getting vast swaths of its own population vaccinated for those that choose. Uh, if you have to buy, imagine having to buy tens of millions of vaccine doses. And from what I hear, the vaccine is a two-part Vaccines, so you don't just get one, you get one, then you come back the next day to get the other, and then you're vaccinated. So, you need two doses of the vaccine for every one person. So, <laughs> oh my god. Imagine being, say, Germany, with a population of roughly, what is it, 80, 80 million? Roughly 80 million? <laughs> and having... To get double your population, or roughly, you know, vaccinated. That's going to cost you a pretty penny. That, what, $160 million? That's going to cost you a pretty penny. 
Britain, I believe, is going to be producing their own. France is probably going to get reach a point where they can produce their own. I know France produces all of its own military equipment, so I imagine they like self-sufficiency. Russia will have, what, is that 300 million doses? Could they have like a one and a 140-something million people? China, we're not even going to talk about that. But countries, you're going to have to get two doses for every person. So that's going to be a big hit to the economy. But the U.S. is a producer. So we could see the U.S. or whoever the president be, uh, they could use the vaccine to help fast-track economic recovery. Uh, And it would be a good thing if you're bringing back manufacturing of pharmaceuticals to the United States to do this. So it's a win-win um if you do it you know we're gonna, we'll see we'll we'll see i believe that it's going to be great moving forward cuz we have this vaccine uh and potentially the lockdowns should be coming to an end before next year i mean before the, the second half of next year so we'll see the winner will also oversee whether or not U.S. troops actually leave Afghanistan. And the reason I bring that up is because the Trump team has been getting these peace deals. They got a peace deal with the Taliban. They're pulling out troops in exchange for the Taliban, making peace with the government. Taliban will shoot at us if we stop pulling out. So having a president that isn't going to go along with the withdrawal... You can see how that could be a bad thing, because once they, if they start shooting at us, it's going to be a very easy justification to go, you know, maybe we should stay. And the entire American populace will give a collective sigh of, oh my God, we're still here. So, and that's important because Biden has voted more often than not, and by a very large margin, in favor of going to war than not going to war. We, he was in office. Well, not just in office. He was the vice president for eight years. And we didn't get out of the wars. We just, we actually ramped them up and bombed more people while he was the vice president. So if there's anything to expect from him on, in regards to Middle Eastern policy, it's not an unfair bet to say more war not an unfair bet to say that we might not get out of Afghanistan even though we were so close but on the optimist in me uh, hopes that we will you know who knows maybe Trump pulls off this some ridiculous upset and he continues what he was already doing and we do get out of Afghanistan and we continue getting these peace deals between Israel and a whole host of other Islamic countries Saudi Arabia, uh, eventually, but who knows, who knows, there's a de facto alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia, but whether or not the Saudis will officially recognize Israel, uh, is a completely different story. And now, while we're still in the Middle East, uh, we'll talk about Ethiopia, well, we'll get to Ethiopia in just a minute, so stick around. 
All right, we're back, and now we're going to talk about Ethiopia. Let's talk Ethiopia for a minute. Now, last episode, we brought up the Tigray rebel, uh, rebel group in Ethiopia, which is the northern region. Uh, we brought it up because I was able to confirm that that region is right there next to the Renaissance Dam that has caused geopolitical tensions between uh, Ethiopia and Egypt. And for anybody who knows Egypt, Egypt and the Nile uh, go hand in hand. So a dam on one of the tributaries to the Nile that could dry it up a little bit and reduce the arable land is really, really, really bad for Egypt. So we brought it up and how this rebellion in Tigray could potentially, uh, how do I put, it could put the dam in danger. All right, it could put the dam in serious danger, especially if a, any foreign actor were to get themselves involved. Now, the rebellion seems to have been put down for now. Uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, stormed the army's northern command. The army retaliated and performed a sweeping law enforcement operation. The TPLF, that's the Tigray People's Liberation Front, their forces and leaders are now in retreat. And Ethiopia, just this morning, I believe, has reopened airspace over Tigray. Now, Ethiopia is a very mountainous country, which means that there are plenty of places to hide, and it might not be over yet. They can still regroup. And, you know, if, if the Mujahideen have taught us anything, the mountains can be a good thing, especially when you live there. So... We'll see how it plays out. Hopefully it's over for Ethiopia. You know, uh, they probably don't want anything bad to happen to the Renaissance Dam. Egypt probably does. But, alright. That's, it's good that they've managed to hold the country together because they risked falling apart at the seams from all of their other ethnic groups uh, potentially rebelling as well. So, good news for Ethiopia potentially still dangerous situation that they are in, but for the time being, Ethiopia is in the clear. Meanwhile, we'll go across the African continent to Morocco. I brought it up a minute ago talking about the United States, but Morocco and Israel have signed a peace deal. Uh, so in exchange for U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty, over the West Sahara region. We talked about the uh, co uh, little conflict brewing there where they were blockading roads between Morocco and Mauritania. Uh, that being the Western Saharans and their uh, independence movement blocking the roads. We brought that up. But in exchange for the U.S. recognition of Morocco's sovereignty slash ownership over the Western Sahara region... Uh, Morocco has agreed to full normalization of relations between them and Israel, a reopening of liaison offices between both countries, and free air travel rights. So, pretty big. Pretty big. I uh, heard, uh, gathering info for this episode, that there is uh, a decently large Jewish community uh who have roots in Morocco. So now they'll be able to visit 
their ancestral homeland in Morocco. And it's going to be a pretty good thing for them. It's always nice to see a peace deal that doesn't screw a country over. Like, <laughs> but it's nice. Israel is probably very much enjoying themselves right now. Uh, it has yet to be seen if there's any going to be any like major serious Islamic backlash to all these peace deals. So far, it seems everything's going pretty smoothly, but that could just be because their attention is currently on France right now, and maybe a decade later they'll uh, go back to being hostile towards Israel because of some war. But just like Ethiopia, Israel and Morocco seem to be in the clear for now, and it's a good thing. We have good news. It's good news that there's peace in Ethiopia. There's peace in Morocco and Israel. Now, the Ethiopia thing threatened to destabilize um, the entire region. Uh, no, not the Ethiopia thing. It was the Sudan. Sudan's uh, power struggle threatened to leave that whole region wide open to foreign influence. But uh, e at least Ethiopia will be relatively safe. Unless something bad happens to Sudan, in which case the Tigray People's Liberation Front could take advantage of the crisis and, just like I said, move through Sudan to poke and prod at Ethiopia from beyond Ethiopia's reach, which would force them to respond by moving into Sudan Sudanese territory, which probably would put them at the top of Sudan's shit list and very quickly align Sudan away from Ethiopia and towards Egypt. Sudan uh, is actually in favor of the Renaissance Dam because they'll get electricity sold to them by the Ethiopians. If Ethiopia starts doing military incursions into Sudan, trying to pursue their own rebels, well, Sudan's not going to like that too much. So I guess we should still be keeping our eyes out for developments in Sudan because uh, it could blow the whole lid off of this thing. Uh and the Middle East isn't exactly known for playing nice. They're right across the Red Sea from Arabia, so any rebel group that the Arabians like could be smacked in the face with a wad of cash. So, I guess all eyes on Sudan, uh, as far as East Africa goes. Meanwhile, while we're going to go south, we haven't gone to the southern part of this continent before, I think. Anyway... Portugal is to help Mozambique-trained troops to fight the militant insurgency in the Cabo Delgado region. Uh, so that's the general theme of this section right here. Uh, in my notes, I have that masses of people have fled to the port city of Pemba after Islamic militants started an insurgency in the Cabo Delgado region. Now, they... Mozambique government, um, they wanted to, let's see, they wanted to gain, uh, oh, my notes are so messed up. Okay, okay. So, the Mozambique government wanted help from the EU. Originally, they asked for help from the EU. Now, Portugal was really the only one to actually respond to that call for help. And the Portuguese say that they want to support the Mozambique authorities so they can, quote, exercise their sovereignty. Um, Portugal uh, is kind of an important player here for two reasons. 
uh, well, three, one being that they were the only one to respond to this call for help, but the other two reasons, and I think this is uh, more important with regards to the context of maybe why Portugal made moves like this. Uh, number one, Portugal is the former colonial master of Mozambique. That's right. Portugal used to own this country. And uh, it's just another example of former colonial powers maintaining influence in their former colonies. The British have the, the Commonwealth, you know, where Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they all respect the crown. So they have that and potentially a Kanzuk on the way. Potentially a Kanzuk on the way. Uh, the French have maintained their presence in Syria, Lebanon. They've maintained their presence in Ghana and other West African countries like Algeria uh, and Libya. Now, they didn't have a colony in Libya. I'm not, I don't believe they did, but Libya is there. France is a Mediterranean power. They're involved. So, the Europeans are exerting their influence over their former colonies. And Portugal, in this instance, is no different. But another reason why this was interesting is because Portugal takes over the EU presidency next year, in January. So, what are they doing? Could they be, uh, I don't know, trying to pull themselves into this conflict so they can then pull the resources of Europe to assist here? And, you know, gain influence in their former colony. Who knows? Portugal is making power plays. I wasn't expecting this. I literally brought up in the last episode that nobody would have thought that Portugal would have upended the spice trade. And here they are taking me by surprise again. Uh, so there's Portugal. Very, very interesting. Haven't talked too much about Portugal. But ugh, things can get interesting very quickly, as France has shown us. Meanwhile, we're going to go back to Iraq. I brought up Iraq earlier, and we're going to talk now about Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, the anti-government protests and riots occurred in the region of Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, about 10 people were dead and 65 were injured by Friday morning. Uh, a curfew and travel ban were imposed between cities in the region. Fires were set to the headquarters of Iraqi political parties by the rioters. Uh, there appeared to have been no um, uh, no real differentiation between their treatment of the political parties. They, they just set fire to their buildings. And the justification given by the rioters and protesters were that public workers have been unpaid since April. The government officials... They accused of being corrupt, they accused of embezzling money, and accused of nepotism. And the Iraqi government responded by saying that the situation was complicated. Now, Iraq makes most of its money from oil sales. That's why the story earlier on, when we were in the rapid-fire news section, caught my attention. Even though no oil production was disrupted... The fact that that attack even happened uh, probably isn't something that the Iraqis want at all happening at a time like this, 
when they're going to need every dime that they can get from their oil sales. Uh, especially with the Kurdistan region making demands that their public servants uh, get paid. And Iraq is going to need oil money for that. Uh, so basically money, the way it works with regards to oil is that the money from the Kurdistan region that they get from the oil sales, it goes to the national government and then gets redistributed uh, proportionally to various sections of the country. Right. So while that already by it hasn't worked out too well or as well as it's promised, now you remove the oil revenue, whether that's by... Uh, COVID lockdowns and the depressing of oil prices or random actors, be it militant or state actors or state-sponsored militants attacking your oil sector, uh, Iraq is in a very, well, shitty position to be in right now. Uh, and they probably don't want to be dealing with a Kurdish rebellion right now. Now they... The Kurds are technically always in a state of rebellion, but we're not going to talk about that. Alright, so that's Iraq and the precarious situation that they're in. And if anything were bad were to happen to them, you could see a three-way de facto partition between Arabia, Iran, and Turkey. Turkey, having nowhere left to go but south is probably going to be looking and poking and prodding for every opening it can find in its southern neighbors. Uh, I imagine Syria will eventually be on the list, especially that given how war-torn they are. The second they demilitarize, or demobilize, I should say, the Turks are going to move in. And they'll probably take the lessons from war and begin trampling their neighbors at some point in the future. They don't seem to adhere to the idea of international law being the first and last resort they are taking violence as an option so if anyone's going to start a war in the region uh any regional power is going to start a war in the region it's probably going to be turkey so eyes out on turkey but now we're going to move on to india and pakistan now Indian troops have been authorized to increase their weapons and ammunition stockpiles to support a 15-day period of high-intensity warfare against uh, Pakistan and China simultaneously. Now, that means a lot of weapons and ammunitions, uh, especially when you're talking high-intensity, almost constant shooting against massive countries like China and Pakistan. Now, this is a very, very, very noticeable increase from the previous 10-day high-intensity warfare mark that they used to operate on. So, they've gone from 10 to 15, and it was higher before, I remember. it was. It, see, I remember reading, and it used to be like 35 days it went down to 10, now it's going back up to 15, uh, and just another sign of the escalation between the two sides as they dig in their heels and get ready for their Cold War. Uh, they'll eventually realize they'll 
they're in, just like America and the Soviets realized that they were in later on. No one knew it at the start, because people to this day disagree on when the start of that Cold War was. So, uh, just like uh, when I brought up with the boat of 41 Indians uh, who were carrying coal to China, it could be like a single incident that m marks the recognition, not the start, but the recognition of a Cold War between India and China. And I brought up with Australia that the Cold War between India and China won't just be fought by India and China. There's going to be other players involved. And we can see Pakistan is already on that list. And they have already dug in their heels. They're on China's side. Australia is digging in their heels now. And for economic purposes, they're probably going to realign themselves towards India. Indonesia is going to be the wild card. Uh, Indonesia and the Philippines, that is. They're going to be the wild cards in this. Uh, but India does have Japan on their side. China is still seeking to turn India's neighbors against them, that being, say, Burma, uh, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, Nepal, and Bhutan. China does have outsized influence in Nepal, which effectively gives them a bypass through the Himalayas due to how Nepal's territory is shaped. So they could walk through Nepal and then be right on the flats of the Ganges River Valley, which is in northern India, which right up against the app, not the Appalachian, the Himalayan mountains. So that's a security threat for India. This is a chokehold. This is the chokehold that the Chinese have put them in that have effectively forced the Indians to respond by counter-encircling the Chinese with a 10-year military pact with Japan. Now, I'll keep bringing that up until the day I die, or until the day it expires and doesn't get renewed, but they have a 10-year pact with Japan, and that effectively counter-encircles the Chinese, uh, especially considering that the Russians are going to stay out of this. They'll probably be more friendly toward the Chinese, but the Chinese and Russians are on and off friends. We saw with the Sino-Soviet split, we saw it when the collapse of the Qing dynasty, where everyone else, all the Western powers, sought to gain spheres of influence in China, then the Soviets were on the side of the communist Chinese, and then you had the Sino-Soviet split, and now they're back on good terms right now, but that could change at any moment. So, Russia's probably going to be a wild card as well. Uh, major economic and military wild card at that. So, but the real thing that we should be looking out for is China, who aligns themselves with China and India that is in the region. Because all the countries between them are going to be in the firing, are going to be in the line of fire. So that means Indochina, that means Burma, who is tearing themselves away from China right now. They Chinese uh, didn't respect them as equals, so now they're offended, and they're seeking uh, relations with countries beyond China, which is probably going to draw them straight to India. Which is going to be great for India, because that's an excellent buffer between them and China, and an excellent country to not have as an enemy. Yeah, there's like a straight path you can walk between China, Burma to India, or India through Burma to China. It's mountainous and jungles, but it's a path nonetheless.
better than the Himalayas. Uh, Pakistan, uh, they have the Pakistan Democratic Movement. They're a political organization in the country, and they're aiming for control over the government. And they see India's actions in Kashmir as a great insult to the country. And they're basically accusing the, the current government, uh, they're accusing the current government of not doing enough about India, which says it all, uh, that we're in some sort of, well, that they are in some sort of major standoff that isn't going to end anytime soon, and could lead to war. This could be the conflict that leads to war. The Chinese are there. You have Pakistan there. Both of them are taking a hard line against India. And India is trying to build an alliance of countries uh, to counter and circle China that will take a hard stance against China. India's coalition is not quite as sturdy as China's is right now. It could change later, especially as, uh, say, Australia and Japan really start digging in their heels more. And then you can have solid allies. Uh, naval allies to challenge China at sea and boost India economically. But for the time being, the balance of power is heavily in China's favor uh, and it's probably going to remain so as the Chinese um, have undone their lockdowns and are gunning for economic growth already while China is, well not China, while India is in a bit of a recession. Now, all of this is happening at a time when India, internally, is in trouble. Uh, one of the biggest strikes in history took place in the northeastern part of the country. I believe I brought it up. I keep saying I believe, but I can never be too sure, because sometimes I'll go through an episode of the podcast and miss a note or two. So, if I am not mistaken, I brought it up in one of the previous episodes... Uh, where f farmers uh, and agrarian workers in the region, the far northeast region, uh, it's kind of like to the northeast from Bangladesh, if you look on a map, that region, they began protesting uh, the Indian government's uh, privatizations, saying it was too, uh, too biased in favor of, say, big companies and corporations and aim to screw over the little guy basically so they did a march where they were on they were en route to say the capital right like the capital of the country and you have people who are now camping out they're not going to go anywhere it keeps getting bigger and there was like a general strike and and that general strike, which was nationwide, you know, for in sympathy of these people, 250 million people just didn't go to work. That is almost the entire population of the United States. That is 60-something million people short of the entire population of the United States. And... If I'm not mistaken, that's more people than is in Brazil. That's the entire Brazilian population going on strike. So India is going through some serious turbulence internally, uh, while its adversaries and legitimate enemies 
are making power plays to strangle him into submission and into, uh, well, diplomatic geopolitical irrelevance. And India is probably not going to take that lying down. But um, I'd imagine all the people striking would appreciate an invasion less than pro-corporate policy. So I don't expect them to suddenly turn against their own country. India's The Indians do like India uh, as a country. They want better. So India has serious internal and external troubles to get around. But I believe as time goes on, you'll see the sides start to even out. And again, we can't predict the future. There are things that'll happen that we were so random that you can't predict them, which means you can't predict the effect that they'll have on, say, a broader context where China could have a falling out with, say, Pakistan, and suddenly Pakistan uh, hates China more than it hates India, like say, over the issue of the Uyghurs in Western China. And I brought that up before as well. I can say definitively that I've talked about that, where China's treatment of the Uyghurs uh, is going to be their greatest Achilles heel with regards to recruiting nations in their coalition against India. Because the vast majority of those nations are Islamic and have large Islamic populations. The Philippines, Indonesia... Bangladesh, and of course, Pakistan. Four key countries and key locations that one of them is already on China's side, the other is within China's sphere of influence, and the other two are wild cards, those last two being the Philippines and Indonesia. Sizable countries that China will probably need if it is to truly encircle India. Not to mention their ambitions for extracting oil in the Middle East via the Belt and Road Initiative, where they will, they've will they built railroads through more Muslim countries to get oil that, it's, that is extracted from other Islamic and Muslim countries. So the issue with the Uyghurs is going to be China's greatest Achilles heel if they are not able to control the public opinion or at the very least, the opinion of the people at the top in the countries that they're doing business with, uh, whether that's to secure oil from the Middle East, uh, which is Islamic, or to gain geopolitical and strategic allies against India, who are predominantly Islamic. And if India is smart, they will hammer that home uh, until the day that the sun explodes. Uh so yeah, that's what I see. India is probably going to have to focus very hard on the economic aspect right now. That's what they need to focus on right now. Uh, and that's what I see them trying to focus on. They've reopened their economy. And they're probably going to start getting trade deals uh, with other countries uh, like Australia, who is currently being targeted in their trade war with China. And Australia is going to have a lot of coal to sell in India is probably going to need to go through some major economic uh, changes to compete with the Chinese. So they're probably going to want energy. And that's going to mean coal, that's going to mean oil. 
but at the very least Australia has the coal and the raw materials. Australia is a very big exporter of raw materials and India is a very large market. I see a natural alliance forming between those two. We'll see where New Zealand goes. Australia and New Zealand were not a part of the massive trade deal, uh, the massive trade agreement between China and many of the other East and Southeast Asian nations. But the lines in the sand are being drawn. There are billions of people that are at serious risk if the various players don't get this right. All right. Literally any wrong step. One wrong step and you could have tens of millions of people die from bombing and war and famine or some sort of secret covert war where you're doing information warfare and you get the country in question to start fighting themselves, which again caused tens of millions to die. Uh, Which is obviously something that you don't want to see, but if it does happen, you want to be like me and be on the other side of the ocean. The right side of the ocean. Uh, We'll get into our closing statements in just a minute. I'll see you there. Alright, we're back. We're going to start to wrap things up here. and I'll give my thoughts on kind of the general gist of what I've seen. Uh, It's been a bit more random than usual. Uh, My other episodes, I kind of see like a general trend moving forward. But in this instance... uh, the trend that I've seen, which is much more subtle than anything else, but the trend I'm seeing now is a continuation of this movement away from, say, a unipolar or bipolar world, uh, where one country, the United States, or two countries, uh, U.S. and Soviets, or U.S. and China, we're moving away from a paradigm like that, where you have superpowers uh, as other countries start to catch up or the superpower in question disengages but we're moving away from that sort of paradigm back to the historic norm of a multipolar world where you have a multitude of countries competing with one another and that competition just like the cold war between the US and Soviet uh the US and Soviet Union propels them to great heights but that era came with war. Made lots of major wars. Because when you have lots of different poles of power, you have lots more opportunity for major countries to fight one another. Uh, and I see us moving towards something like that. You have a resurgent Turkey. You have Russia and China right now, who are already great powers aside from the United States. Uh, Then you have the European powers uh, trying to get their feet back under them. Uh, The British are going to go for Kanzuk at some point. Maybe they'll vote against it, who knows. But it's looking like they're going to be in favor of Kanzuk, which will propel them straight back to great power status. Especially as they're rebuilding their navy. They are getting a supercarrier. Well, a second supercarrier. And they're in talks for designing a supercarrier with India which would be great for India, uh, uh, they, by all means, should probably be a, at least partially a naval power, but they've been pretty busy on land with China and India, 
Wait, India is busy with India. No, with China and Pakistan. But I see, well, India moving up to being a great power as they are drawn into this competition with the Chinese, which is effectively going to be a struggle for their very survival because they're in, in a stranglehold right now. I see, I brought up Turkey. They're probably going to make power plays in the Middle East. That's a lot of oil. That's a lot of religious prestige. And if they get the Suez, that's a lot of money. More money than oil. More money than oil? Uh, I'd say 18 trillion is more money than oil. I see France um, taking hard stance and reasserting who it is. Muslim world or the EU be damned and they're probably going to go their own way they're probably going to go their own way at this rate especially if the EU undergoes a perpetual secession crisis which it's already kind of going through right now with Hungary and Poland in flat out rebellion against their proposed uh, budget now they did reach an agreement but it's uh, another sign that the EU is fragmenting, and I imagine that whenever the more right-wing parties in Italy get into power, uh, they're going to go straight for Ital exit, because uh, uh, that's the general sentiment moving forward, which is also going to accelerate this trend towards multipolar world, where you're going to have more nations acting independently of one another, and trying to look out for themselves. Some countries are going to be better at that than others. And the countries that are better are going to get stronger. And they're going to be able to exert influence. Uh, just like the European empires did. You'll see certain winners and losers in Africa as well. Although a lot fewer of them than you would see in, say, Europe or Asia. But that's, the, that's where I see us moving towards. And I'm not entirely sure what that'll entail. Uh, maybe this period of uh, rule of law prevailing will have at least some impact over how countries conduct themselves in the future. But for now, uh, I wouldn't exactly make that bet. Especially when you see uh, Russia, China, and Turkey blatantly violate the rule of law. And even the United States blatantly violate international rule of law using their militaries to achieve what they want. So what happens when more countries start to do that? Uh, what happens when they run into a country that is strong enough to fight them back and chooses to do so? We're going to see, we're seeing the return of great power competition. That's what we're seeing. And it's going to be an exciting time. It's going to be a dangerous time. But regardless of whether it's exciting, dangerous happy or sad because you've your country becomes great or it falls into subservience to an empire um whatever that may be we know that the world is definitely changing now, we don't know how it's going to change but we know that it is you know what else we know we know that we're going to watch it together now i've been your host hi sean wade and you've been watching this week in geopolitics so, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my Geopolitics podcast, and I'll see you next Monday. Servus.